Uh, now, the elders and I have been talking about uh, family discipleship and how we might uh, encourage the body more and more to do that. Uh, we know that God is intensely interested in your family as he is in my family. And we as a church want to be uh, as interested uh, as, as much as we can. We want to try to match God's interest in the family uh, here at Calvary Chapel. So uh, it's now, of course, it's not going to be limited to parenting, saying that a couple that is without children is a family, and as a family, discipleship is necessary. Uh, we're going to begin with the discipleship of children, uh, and then we'll move on toward the marriage probably next week. Now, before we jump into these uh, matters specifically, I would like to provide uh, what we might call a biblical or theological grounds for it, especially regarding what we might say that the why and the how for family discipleship. Uh, I will have a, a primary text, I guess, this morning, Ephesians chapter four, or chapter six, verse four, uh, but the basis uh, for family discipleship is going to take us all over the text of Scripture. And uh, so, yeah. So why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we'll begin. And I'll give you the biblical and theological grounds for a family theology, we might say. So, Father, we, we love you, and uh, we're just so thankful that we have each other. Lord, we have you. We have the fellowship of your Spirit. Lord, I thank you for the, the growing uh, number of people fellowshipping and, uh, and getting together in your name in, in worship and in the ministry of your word. And I pray that uh, because of the current distress and things going on, Lord, I pray that um, by your grace that you would diminish all of that and that you would increase the fellowship of your people, uh, increase the worship, Lord, of our God, and um, yeah, and Lord, I, my heart breaks for our communities and all that they're going to be enduring over the next uh, or few weeks and of course years because of all the damage that has happened and is going to happen. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that the church, not just Calvary Chapel, but uh, the church at large, uh, even globally, would be now preparing themselves for uh, the ministry that is inevitably going to be before them. And so prepare our hearts for that and, uh, and help us to be ever sensitive to people. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would use all of this stuff to more than ever show people their need for you. Uh, Lord, whether it be their financial instability, whether it be uh, their, um, uh, their, just their, their mortality being before them, uh, whatever it takes, Lord, we want people to be softened toward our God and, uh, and the cross. And so just help us to be ready to give an answer and uh, to be assertively sharing the hope that's in Christ. And Lord, as we talk about family discipleship, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would use your word to encourage us. Uh, Lord, I know that my conviction in this regard needs to be renewed all the time. Uh, because it's just easier not to. And uh, so I pray that uh, you wouldn't just encourage our hearts, but that you would give us skill and wisdom uh, in this matter so that we might glorify you. And Lord, that through this you might produce what we may call 
um, generational faithfulness. Uh, so yeah, so be with us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, when it comes to uh, the discipleship of our children, uh, our kids, uh, we need to consider why, uh, and eventually we're going to have to consider how, because it would really be naive for me to assume that we're all on the same page uh, at the mention of this. Uh, the reality is, uh, most churches do not teach this properly, and, in, and, and most churches inadvertently teach against family discipleship. Inadvertently. I don't think that any church is against family discipleship, but what ends up being communicated generationally and even culturally is that uh, family discipleship is not something for the family, as it were. I know it sounds crazy, so now I have to uh, defend my claim. Uh, basically, what has happened over uh, probably the last 150 years is that parents have taken less and less responsibility for their children, uh, their kids' discipleship, and what they've done is they've placed more and more responsibility uh, on the church to accomplish this. And, and now, instead of the parents being the primary source of discipleship, Sunday school is, uh, Awana is, which is unbiblical. Uh, and not only is it unbiblical, it turns out to be, when we view the scriptures, it turns out to be wrong. And uh, it's good for the church to complement and to uh, reinforce the discipleship of our children by means of those programs. There's nothing wrong with those programs in themselves, but they should never replace and they should never be primary. And so let's look at why this is. <clears throat> the responsibility of child discipleship belongs to the parents simply because God has commanded it. And if he's commanded it, we don't need any other reason. The new covenant command is in Ephesians 6, 4. It goes like this. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, the first thing, I'm not going to exegete the passage itself, but there are things that I want you to notice from this one, and then we're going to expand on it from other passages in the Bible. But notice here how the admonition is directly uh, and specifically to the fathers. It's to the fathers. And throughout scripture, uh, if the admonition is not directed specifically to the father, it is directed to the parents and no one else. The first parenting passage in the Bible puts the responsibility actually on Abraham, who is the father. It's Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, where God says, I have known Abraham in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So that's the first one, and it, and it happens to actually be prior to the giving of the law of Moses. So whatever knowledge Abraham had of justice and righteousness and the ways of the Lord, uh, that was to be from him to his children. And then when we come to the law of Moses, there are just multiple, there's tons of commands uh, that are given uh, to the parents, many, many passages. But the primary one is found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through seven, where Moses says, <clears throat> and it's, it's very clearly something that's done uh, by the parents. It says, and these words, which I command you today shall be in your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Very clearly that, that family discipleship is not just a parental obligation uh, from the Lord. It's something that should be taking place all day, throughout the day, in all the areas of life. And of course, uh, when that's possible and when it's practical. Uh, and then in the Psalms, so that actually, uh, Deuteronomy 6 is in the law, but then we come to the Psalms, and the instruction is said to uh, come from the fathers, Psalm 78, 4 through 6, where Asaph says that they will share God's word and God's wonders to the next generation, so they learn to hope in God and obey him. The fathers are to relay all of these things to the children, the wonders of God, the word of God, so that they would learn to hope in him. That's Psalm 78, four through six. And then in the Proverbs, the instruction is, is both from fathers and from mothers. So it's not, uh, it's not like mothers are excluded from this. Uh, they're a part of um, the discipleship of the children. Uh, the Proverbs 4, one through four is the example from the fathers and Proverbs 6, 20. And, uh, and of course, Proverbs 31, verse one uh, is the role of the mother in all of this. So we have the Psalms, the prophets, uh, and then we have, uh, I mean, the Psalms and the Proverbs, and then we have the prophets where the father is commanded to teach his children all about the Lord. Isaiah 38, 19, Isaiah says, the father shall make known your truth to the children. And then, of course, here in the New Testament, we have the responsibility placed on the father in Ephesians 6, 4. So we have before the law, we have in the law, we have the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets, and uh, we also have uh, reiterated, if you will, in the New Testament. And we will come back to this verse and we'll exegete it because there are words and uh, phrases in Ephesians 6, 4 that are filled with all kinds of meaning. And so that when the Greek mind heard uh, words like paideia in the Greek, their mind was filled with all kinds of concepts. But then Paul takes the word paideia and he puts it into a theological context. And, uh, and those are all very important to us, both bringing up, training, admonition, all that stuff. So we'll talk about that later. And uh, so yeah. And then also, you know, as we consider a family theology, the scriptures always place the primary responsibility on the father. But we know that reality uh, shows us that fathers aren't always around, right? Uh, we have single mothers. I grew up with a single mother. And so that responsibility then falls upon the mother. And, and I believe that a, a godly community of faith will come alongside mothers to help. But also, if the father's not around, or I'm sorry, the father is around, but he's not a believer, it's really the same as if he wasn't around. And so that role still falls upon the believing mother and the assistance of those in the church. But something that we do not find in the scriptures, which we would expect to find based upon uh, modern practices, are a number of passages placing this obligation on the church. We would expect to find that uh, because of the way the church conducts itself today, but it, they're not there. there, there are none. God never tells the community of faith to take up child discipleship specifically specifically, okay? 
But today we find that parents <clears throat> have placed this responsibility on the church, and too many churches, I believe, have met their expectation. And parents often choose the church they attend based upon the, uh, the Sunday School program, the Awanus program, and the VBS. But this is, this is an unbiblical expectation. And many parents who have this expectation, which they think is the church's responsibility, do little to no discipleship with their children. It's very strange. And um, I pray that we can account for this uh, by a lack of biblical knowledge and uh, by the, the tendencies that we have to give in to tradition. Uh, so anyway, we, we don't want to be that way here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we want to be teaching, and we want to be expecting that Christian parents uh, take on the discipleship of their own children. It is, again, it's fine for the church to complement, to reinforce the discipleship of children uh, by various means, um, but it's not okay for the church to be the primary source uh, of discipleship for children. It is biblically the parent's responsibility and I believe that parents should be doing their best to take this back from the church uh, wherever they're found. So Sunday school can be a great benefit, it can be a compliment, but it can never be a replacement. The church cannot obey God for the parents. They just can't, the church can't do that. On judgment day, God's not going to be handing out rewards to parents who faithfully sent their children to Sunday school uh, but failed to disciple their own children at home. So the command to bring your children up and the training and the admonition of the Lord is really, uh, when we look at it, it's no different than the command to honor your father and mother and to love your neighbor as yourself. Discipling your children is the command of God. It's the parents' responsibility, not the church's. And um, it's just not something the parent can hand over to the church or delegate to the church. Those children are yours to parent. And uh, Christian parenting uh, is discipleship. It's discipling. So, so don't let our Sunday school teachers outdo you in discipling your children in the faith. Now, uh, <clears throat> um, as you know, uh, currently we're not even really having services. And we definitely don't have uh, all of the, the Sunday school stuff going on. And I think that this summer would be a great time for you uh, to get into the habit of doing discipleship and family worship at your home if you're not already doing that. Uh, for those of you who are not doing family discipleship or you don't know how to do it and perhaps you've just now learned that you ought to be doing it, uh, that will be a discussion for later. But I do want to say for now <clears throat> that it's good to set aside a time uh, every day, whether it's in the morning or the evening, uh, something specific to open the scriptures together, to be reading them, talking about them, and then uh, discuss uh, how it is that they could be practiced. And then throughout the day, especially dads, when you are home with your children, uh, using the scriptures to, in, or incorporating the scriptures rather, into your daily lives. What it is to, to in the, the teaching of the word and the practice of the word, your example is essential to them. But I would say that in this specific time that uh, it would be good to sing hymns of worship together and to, as a family, to pray, to give thanks together. Uh, that's discipleship. Uh, it's, discipleship isn't just uh, verbally uh, teaching the scriptures, 
uh, it's doing all of scripture together with your family and uh, all those things incorporated uh, together. That's family discipleship. We'll get much more specific later, but for now, try to get into a routine in obedience to God as something that you just do as a family. And the younger your children are, the easier this is. Because what they do is from, uh, the, from before they can remember anything, uh, this is just what our family does. They, they believe that it's normal, and it ought to be normal, to just be as a family doing this. And then I would encourage you to patiently wait for the fruit. So uh, why should parents be the primary source of discipleship for their children? We've answered that because God commands it and no other reason is necessary. Now, it should be said, the only time the church could possibly have this responsibility, I do believe that there is possibly a time when the church could be responsible for the discipleship specifically of a child is when there are children who attend the church who have unbelieving parents or, sadly, when there are parents who object to God's word and their children not being discipled at home. Uh, That should be the exception, certainly not the rule. But apart from that, the privilege belongs to the parents. Now, in a more general sense, another question is, why should children be discipled? Why should they be discipled? Now, as I said, we're going to be talking about this theologically, biblically. And so, I would like to, to... finish our time together talking about three major challenges that come between our children and loving God, loving Christ. The first one is uh, they have one internal challenge. They have one internal challenge, and they have two external challenges, and they're all worth talking about. They're all very real. The first one, you know, like us, they're born in sin. They're born in sin. Okay, that's, that's the internal challenge. Uh, that's Psalm 51. David says, In sin my mother conceived me, and I was bought, brought forth in iniquity. We'll come to that in a minute. And then there is the world. That's the first problem without the world. You notice the world's a problem? You probably notice that yourself is a problem. But then you notice that outside of you, the world is a problem. 1 John 2.15, 1 John 5.19. And then we have Satan. He's the second external problem. Okay, that's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Now, I believe that these three realities should deeply concern us and motivate us to bring our children up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Let's talk about the internal challenge first, which brings us to man's moral depravity. Uh, you've probably heard any number of titles or phrases Uh, when it comes to this subject, uh, the depravity of man. We call it inherited sin. Some refer to it as total depravity, uh, which I'm fine with as long as the Bible defines it and not some school of theology. But all of our children are born outside of, excluded from the grace of God with a moral nature that is opposed to him. It's contrary to, To him, morally speaking, they love darkness rather than light. They love darkness rather than light, okay? Unlike Adam, children are born at a disadvantage. We, we, all of us, were born 
at a disadvantage. Adam and Eve were created in the, the moral image of God, which was untainted by sin. And then they were, they were placed in a world that had not yet been contaminated by sin or influenced by Satan. Okay? Their environment was perfect. It was a perfect couple in the perfect world. But when Satan entered the world, subsequent to his own rebellion, he was able to get to Adam by way of deceiving his wife. It's a tragic story. Uh, much of it we don't understand, but uh, he deceived Eve, and then Adam, who was the head of creation, fell into sin, and when he fell into sin, he plunged the rest of creation with him. Paul says that by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and then death by sin, and thus death, which is the consequence of sin, spread to all men because all sinned. What he means by that is all sinned in Adam, okay, his sinful actions uh, were attributed to his offspring, uh, and that's us, Romans 5, 12. And so here we are, created in the image of of Adam, rather. That's one of the sad things when you progress through Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 says that uh, all man and women were created in the image of God, and then as Adam begins to have children, it says that They were created in his his image. Now, we're still created in the image of God, but we've come through Adam who sinned in advance. And that scarred him. It marked him. And then it came through his children. So we're created now in the image of Adam as well, rebels by nature, depraved to the core of our being. Every part of our moral fabric was affected by sin so that Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. David said, there is no one who is just in your sight. And when we look at ourselves and we look at the whole of humanity, we find that we're corrupt, we're greedy, we're selfish, we're proud, we're liars, we're blasphemers, we're ungrateful, we're unthankful, unloving, unmerciful, we're mean, we're thieving, conniving, (laughs) We're idolaters. It's, it's a sad commentary. God describes us this way. He says, every intent of the thoughts of their hearts are evil continually. Happy thoughts about man. Yeah, that's Genesis 6, 5. This is what he observed about man before the flood, and it accounts for why he flooded the earth. Man had become corrupt. But this problem in man was actually brought into what we call the post-Diluvian world by Noah and his family. It survived the flood because it wasn't outside of man. It was inside of man. Okay, And so it's after the flood. God observed it in the heart of man saying, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's Genesis 8, 21. The flood only destroyed the greater population of sinful men, but it did not cure the problem within man. That requires something totally different. And then it was only a couple generations later that man disobeyed God and then started building the Tower of Babel. God said, be fruitful and be scattered across the earth, fill the earth. But man congregated in the Valley of Shinar and built the Tower of Babel, which uh, wasn't simply this, uh, this tower that they built out in the desert. It originally meant the gate of the gods, and it was, uh, it was a temple of astrology. 
It was, it was evil. And uh, in fact, it was from this same region that God called Abraham. And then scripture tells us that Abraham was actually a pagan. He called him out of paganism. So almost immediately after the flood, man started walking in rebellion according to what is in his heart. And again, God observes the heart of man this way. He says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17 verse 9. And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David said, in sin my mother conceives me and I was brought forth in iniquity. Psalm 51 5. So we are born into this world morally deformed, we might say. Deformed. In moral opposition to God. And I guess what else could possibly explain the woes of our world? We are born excluded from the spiritual life that God gives. Uh, We became like Adam after Adam sinned and was then banished from the garden where he had formerly enjoyed fellowship with God. Now, I think it's important to say that we're not born guilty of personal sin. Babies do not sin in the womb. Okay, not, we're not guilty of personal sin, but we are born with the natural propensity to be sinful. It is by nature. Paul describes the human condition as being dead in sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2, 1, saying, having our understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Now, being alienated from the life of God is the best uh, definition, I believe, for what it means to be spiritually dead. Spiritual death does not mean our spirit is dead within us and somehow unconscious and unable to respond to God. As some people insist, uh, unregenerate people throughout Scripture respond to God. They do. It's just a fact of Scripture. Uh, Death in the Scriptures, especially spiritual death, speaks of separation, or as Paul says here, alienation. Spiritually dead means that the spirit of man is separated from God. He's excluded from his grace. He's under his divine wrath. He's, he's bound to live according to his sin nature and destined to be judged for his sin. And so when man comes to faith and is born again, the spirit is not resurrected from death. It is actually reborn. Now back to our subject. As we've said, every person is a sinner by nature, you've noticed, and they are so from the moment of their conception, and therefore we're born into this world alienated from God with moral propensities that are constantly opposed to him. We're broken. A brokenness that leads us towards sin and away from God. And for that reason, Paul says, there are none who seek after God. No one decides one day of their own accord that they'll start pursuing God. Jesus said that no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him, John 6, 44. Paul said that the carnal mind, which is governed by the sin nature, is at enmity with God. It's hostile toward his moral directive, Romans 8, verse 7. So apart from faith in Christ, Paul says in Romans 5.10 that man is the enemy of God. And he's the only one that can change that relationship. Okay. So what does all this mean? It means that our children are born 
with this hostility toward God and their hearts by nature are bent toward disobedience. And their disobedience doesn't just manifest itself against the Lord, but against their parents. They're hostile toward their parents. Perhaps you've noticed this with your children. Uh, Did you have to teach your children the word no? No. How about the word me? (laughs) Mine. You never had to teach them that. Did you have to teach them to lie? Did you have to teach them to steal? think so. Did you teach your children to resist your will? Nobody's raising their hand, and I'm assuming nobody's raising their hand on the camera. How many of you had to teach your children to dishonor you, to covet what didn't belong to them, to be selfish and to be self-willed? Did you coach them to hit others? Okay. Be demanding little overlords, bringing people into servitude. It comes natural to them because they are sinners by nature, just like us. They have an internal challenge that uh, we are to address, Paul says, by bringing them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, for otherwise we will lose them. Our children also have two external challenges that have to be addressed through child training, through, through discipleship. The first one is what we call the world. And the problem with the world is that it's filled with people that are morally depraved. Our culture is designed, it's fashioned by people that are morally depraved. Our, our government, our politics, uh, our school system, everything, it's filled with people who are morally depraved, who uphold morally depraved values and they live morally depraved lifestyles. That is the world, okay? So what do we do in family discipleship? Well, that's easy. All we have to do is keep our children away from the world. Yeah, easily said. But most children are exposed to the influence of the world through all kinds of things, through public school, through social media, through friends, through TV, through YouTube and music. And you know, the real problem, I think, is that the great danger for our children is that the sin nature in our children finds all of the world's influence appealing. It's attractive to the sin nature. By nature, they are enmity with God and his law, and they're drawn to what is morally opposed to him. And the buffet of all of that opposes God is out in the world. This, this deviance, we might say, is all around them. It's constantly in their face. <clears throat> it's being pushed on them. It's celebrated. It's endorsed around them. Culture and society are intentionally going after them. They're baiting them. They're luring our children. They are. In America, since the days of John Dewey, society and education has been intentionally indoctrinating our children with its values. John Dewey made no bones about that. He was a humanist, and he signed the Humanist Manifesto, which is a complete rejection of God, and that man is everything that there is. And so man is to seek himself for everything. And he was intentionally bringing that into the schools. 
But James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God, James 4.4. And so Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're not to be conforming our lives to the world, but our minds through scripture, through discipleship, they're to be renewed and fashioned after God, the mind of Christ. And the challenge is, as you've probably noticed, as children, they will not do this on their own. They will not. They won't. They need their parents to guide them, to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And so I would, uh, as a, uh, a warning to the parents, don't underestimate the power and influence of the world on your children. It's immense. And uh, in the last 10 years, I don't even know how many books have been written about children that are leaving the home faster than they ever have. And they're never returning to the church. So don't underestimate it. Get involved in your children's lives with discipleship. The second external challenge is the only one we have in common with Adam and Eve. And it's not just a thing or a philosophical system. It's a person. And according to God, this person is the most cunning of all of God's creation, Genesis 3.1. Jesus says this person is the father of lies and that he's been a murderer since the beginning, John 8.44. He is the deceiver who can appear as an angel of light to cloak his intentions. I don't believe that that's a metaphor. Uh, I don't believe that it's non-literal. Uh, It says that Satan can appear as an angel of light, and through light he cloaks his motive, 2 Corinthians 11, 14. And I think that he does that with, with many different means on a variety of platforms. We know that this is Satan, and we know that he lives to destroy. Peter, uh, he, he knew the truth of this very well when he said, be sober, and I, I, I'd like to say this to parents, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And I believe Peter knew this very well in his experience because of what Jesus said to him. Jesus came to Peter and said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat, Luke twenty-two, thirty-one. Probably didn't sleep for a few nights after that. Jesus said, but I have prayed for you. Now that's, he's praying for us. But Satan, I believe, as we're seeing in our society, he's seeking to sift our children like wheat. He's trying to destroy their lives. He would love to take them from you, claim them for his own, and then destroy them. And this is just more reason that we should be bringing our children up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And to ensure that we don't overlook reality, we we need to understand that the world is subject to Satan's influence. We have to understand this. John says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Have you noticed? The whole world lies under his sway. Now, when we read Daniel chapter 11 and 12, uh, we see kind of what's happening on the other side of things, okay? As angels are coming to Daniel and saying that they're fighting with the, the, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, these are not human entities. 
These are angels in a spiritual battle with other angels. And these evil angels are called princes of countries. Satan is, has the whole world under his sway. First John chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, Paul calls Satan the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. 4. Uh, we know that in Matthew 4, when Jesus was being tempted, Satan took him up onto a high mountain. And miraculously, he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, these are mine, and I give them to you as long as you bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't argue with him. Jesus understood that he was on Satan's turf. We need to understand that we with our children are on Satan's turf until Jesus returns with his sword. That's the biblical reality. Of course, John says that he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. But this is only a benefit to you if the Holy Spirit is in you, actually in you, through regeneration. That's it. Our children are not born into this world with the Holy Spirit in them like us. They have to be born again. And the means by which God intends for our children to come to the faith is by us bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So I hope that I've given you some good reason uh, to be active in discipling your children. In, In review quickly, by God's command, family discipleship is not the responsibility of the church, but the primary responsibility of the parents, and most specifically the fathers. If he's around, if he's not a believer, he's not around. Mom then is the one who must disciple those kids. And the reason that our kids need to be brought up in the training and the admonition of the Lord is because of their sin nature, which is contrary to God, the world, which is contrary to God, and the devil, who hates God, he hates your children, and would love nothing more than to lead our kids astray and destroy them. So be encouraged, I pray, that um, you understand biblically, theologically, that uh, our kids are our responsibility Christian parenting is discipleship, and uh, our kids have everything in this world against them. They need us. They need us. And uh, we'll get to the, the, the nuts and bolts of all that later. Uh, uh, next week, I'm going to talk about the husband's responsibility to nurture his wife with the scriptures, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I know that uh, many husbands feel uh, completely ill-equipped for this. And it's not a habit of their life. Uh, We'll talk about uh, the responsibility. And we'll talk about, just like in parenting, we grow into this. It's something we we mature in. It's something we get good at at time, uh, over time. And then we'll get into the how regarding uh, family discipleship itself. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray. And then uh, hopefully we'll see you Sunday. All right. Lord Jesus, we love you. And... um, Lord, uh, family discipleship, whatever we choose to call it, uh, the, the, the rearing of our children in the Lord, um, Lord, it's a big deal. It's on your heart from the beginning of Scripture to the end. And uh, Lord, we need, we need to feel it in our hearts. We need to be convicted by your Spirit. Uh, we don't want it to be something of drudgery. Uh, I don't want it to ever become something that's legalistic. 
but I do want to feel the weight and the responsibility of it. And then, Lord, as with any other instruction in your word, to cry out to you for grace, for wisdom, instruction, that we might do it well. And, uh, and Lord, also for our kids, that they would respond to the word and they would, they would come to, to know the God of the word and love him deeply and obey his word. And uh, so, Lord, <clears throat> I just pray that you would help us as Calvary Chapel, your people, uh, that we would grow both in our understanding and our practice of family discipleship. And, Lord, that would also be a- another means of reaching the world as they observe our families. Not that we have everything together, uh, but we got something going on because of your grace and your Holy Spirit. And uh, so just be with us. And I pray, Lord, that from Ephesians 5, as we talk about um, the husband and wife and the husband's responsibility to his wife, um, yeah, Lord, that husbands would be encouraged and that your word would just come alive to us in our marriages. So, Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we just praise your name. Amen. All right, love you guys. Lord bless you. We'll uh, see you sometime. And, uh, okay, bye-bye for now.